But uh, I do have a purpose for the football and the baseball. And uh, I'll share with you in just a moment. But uh, just to give you a little bit more about myself, Eric was kind enough to share what I do. But um, I wanted to share a little bit about who I am and where I was brought up. Some of you may understand is that my parents are from Italy. They were immigrated here in 1964 in Stanford, Connecticut. That's originally where I come from. And so growing up in Stanford, uh, I spoke Italian before I spoke English. Now, some of you are like, wow. Well, with a name like mine, you might think, because my middle name is Raffaele, and I speak Italian fluently. And so, thanks, Eric. So for me, it's that world where I'm a different breed um, to some of you. Some of you are looking at me and you're thinking, wow, his name fits where he comes from. Well, my father, who passed away in 2000, did not speak English, couldn't converse. We had so many Italians where I grew up that he just didn't find his way through the language. And my mom, who just passed away three months ago, what happened was she uh, spoke broken English. Now, you can imagine uh, for, for someone like myself to be able to, to get through what I've had to get through has been a miracle in and of itself. But, but God is so faithful because I prayed when I went to Bible college, I was praying for an Italian woman, an Italian American who would love Jesus. Now, I don't know if some of you would understand in my background, and, and he, most of Italians are Catholic. So to find someone who is evangelical, who knows Christ, was a long shot, but not with God. And so God, and an amazing thing that he did was that he not just gave me an Italian-American, but a woman who's named Gioia, which is the word joy in Italian. And her maiden name is Gaudiuso. So my in-laws are from Italy. So can you imagine what God can do? God can. He's still in the miracle-working business because he gave me Now, you might look at me and say, so big deal, Bruno, you're Italian, so what? So God gave you an Italian wife, and so what? Your in-laws are from Italy. But the beauty of it is that we're all different people made up with different nation people for a purpose. And God wants to call us out here in America because we are a melting pot of different people. And so when I think about it, I think about what is God interested in us? He wants us to have an authentic faith. But in order for that to happen, we have to be willing to exchange hands with God. I'll use that expression. It's a metaphor I'm using, but I'm going to show it, you, show it to you in this particular prop. I enjoy baseball. I love baseball. I'm a Yankee fan. Diehard Yankee fan since 1974. Ages me a little bit. Um, but what happens is when a manager c- comes in the middle of a game, and the game is, the score is four to three, and... They're handing it over to Chapman. And uh, when Joe Girardi's going over there to hand it over to Chapman, he's, doing, he's waiting for him to come to the mound. He's rubbing the ball down, just making sure, here, I'm transferring this over to you. I trust that you're going to finish this game and we're going to have a win. The transfer of his hand to Chapman is a trust that he has in his closer. Now, he could say, you know, Chapman, I believe you can close a lot of games and you can save a lot of games, but maybe not today. And then the next game, I believe you can close this game, but maybe not today. And he never transfers the ball. He can say he believes, but until he transfers it over, it's going to be something to consider. 
football. You have a coach. You have a head coach. Who's he going to give it to? He's going to give that ball, although the referee gives it to the center, center hikes it to the quarterback. It's the quarterback who's the general out there. He gets it from the commander, but he's the general. And it's the head coach that chooses which quarterback is going to have the football in his hand. And then he has to trust that the receiver is going to receive it when he throws it. So when he's doing his pattern and he's back to pass and he's turning to the left to throw it, he's hoping his receiver goes at that target point where he's thrown. Otherwise, it's either going to be a drop ball or miss ball or out of bounds or an interception. But there's trust from a head coach to a quarterback, and then there's trust from a quarterback to a receiver. And even when he hands it off to the fullback or the halfback, the same thing. The trust that the handoff, he won't fumble it. Some of you who are fathers out there or grandfathers remember when you had children. I have four children. One of them is 19. She's been driving for about over a year, a year and a half. When I hand her the keys to the car... By the way, my, if this is an audio, she's gonna, I'm not even going to say anything because then she'll find out. But when I go to hand the keys to my daughter, or to my son soon, he's going to be 15 next, next week, next Saturday. And next year he's going to be 16. I'm going to have to hand him keys. Oh, Lord, help me. So I have to hand her the keys. It's a trust factor. Well, Dad, I'm not going to get into an accident. Well, I believe you're not going to get in an accident, but I'm not going to give you, you know, but I don't give her the keys. But when I hand her the keys, that's trust. And see, in all of these things that we're working through, we have to understand that God is interested in more than just believing. He's interested in trust. And that's what we have to to understand when we're working through the idea of authentic faith. And if, if you and I have to work through that, we have to ask those questions. Because as believers, when do we learn to make that exchange? When do we truly trust the Lord? Do we trust him in words and not deeds? Does God attempt to disclose himself to us, but there are times when we don't pay attention, become apathetic, possibly indifferent toward God, and then we expect him to bless us? See, God is interested in an authentic faith that's going to work. And so in the next three weeks, I hope for us to to touch on the life of Moses we're going to look in the book of Exodus. We're going to ask the questions. We're also going to investigate and find out whether or not Moses was truly understanding. Did he have an authentic faith? Does authentic faith mean that you have to have all the answers? That you have to have an A in Sunday school class? That whenever someone has a problem, you have to hurry up and give them the answer so that they can get out of their problem? Or is it that we could understand that being transparent and vulnerable in exposing ourselves could actually be something God is interested in. So I want to encourage us as we look through this. So if you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 2, Exodus chapter 2, because in the background here, we know the Pharaoh of Egypt, the time of Joseph, when they settled in the land, the Jews became numerous so numerous that Pharaoh was concerned that they would overcome the Egyptians, that he began to oppress them and made them do slave labor work. And so 
as we see that, he even got to the point where Pharaoh said, we're going to kill off all the babies, all the boys, all the males, but keep the females. Because he thought the females wouldn't be any threat, but the males might be a threat because they would be strong enough to overpower him. But lo and behold, we find out, and we know the story is that Moses was hidden by his own mom, and then Pharaoh's daughter found him, and then, Pharaoh, and then Moses' sister came and said, do you need someone to take care of your baby? And then God and his amazing sovereign plan has his own mom take care of him in, in, in Egypt with Pharaoh. But e- even if you think about it, just for a moment, and I was thinking as I was studying, I caught this thought through one of the commentaries, is that as much as Pharaoh wanted to think that a woman would not be a threat, it was the women that God used <laughs> to protect Moses. Isn't that cool? And it was God who used Moses' mom to bring him up in Egypt. But we come into chapter 2 and we see 40 years go by and afterwards he, he, he murders a, a, an Egyptian to save the Hebrew people and then flees to Midian, gets married. And then towards the end of chapter 2 we see a summary there that says this. During that long period, we don't know how long that is, even commentary scholars don't know, that the king of Egypt died, the Pharaoh died at this point, and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Some key points there that you need to see in these verses right here. First of all, we see cried out and groaned. In the Hebrew, it's very important to understand that, that groaned and cried out is a similar thought there. He's laying it out with two different words, but he's trying to highlight that of the anguish and pain and suffering that these folks went through when they were being oppressed by Pharaoh and by Egypt. So they were crying out to God, groaning in the depths of their being, trying to get help from God. And then he goes on to say this, even in, even in the NIV that I'm reading from now, doesn't even capture it, what really the Hebrew is saying, because there's four words here. And then he goes, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. So they're crying, they're groaning, and they're crying out. So two verbs and then a noun. And then all of a sudden, it says God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant. Now, here's what's key right here. The word heard in the Hebrew is shama. It's a name for God. It means that God is present. So when they were groaning and crying out to God, God said, I've heard you. I'm present. I am there for you. That's a cool promise. But not only a promise, the covenant, the unconditional covenant that was given to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, that he would reach out a nation, a land, and a people. And you and I are part of that because the Jews and the Gentiles are incorporated there. But he meets with the Jews at first. And he's telling his people, I remember my covenant. It's not as though he remembers it. Remembers means that he'll keep his promise to the covenant that he already established through Abraham. And just a few generations before, but we know that today, even in Christ, because Jesus is the seed of Abraham, that he still remembers his covenant. Isn't that cool? 
And so you have to understand when you're groaning and crying out and trying to find out what is God trying to, to, to do in my life? Why is he allowing the circumstances to become the way they are? God's saying, I heard you and I remember my covenant. Isn't that cool? And see, that's what he's doing here. He's sharing some of that. And God is beginning to, he's going to share some of that as he moves along. But God right now wants to introduce himself to someone that he has chosen already to redeem his people. When he heard, he said, I'm present. I I already have chosen someone. I'm about to meet him and he's about to meet me. And so in chapter 3, it says, Now Moses was tending, verse 1, the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within, from within a bush. Now, how many of you have ever seen a bush turn into a flame and not consume itself? But a bush just remains in its, in its nature with flames all around that. Wouldn't that be amazing to see? I mean, that's a, obviously we know it's a supernatural act. So God is trying to get Moses' attention by saying, I'm here, I'm Shama, I'm here with you, watch out, because I'm about to do something supernatural. Now, you and I might think, so what, a bush is burning, big deal. But you know what, to Moses, he was like in the desert. Can you imagine? Just sitting there wondering, and he's focusing on it. Verse 3, he goes, so Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Now, one of the things you have to understand here is that God is calling on his representative. Moses, Moses, in an Eastern culture setting, when you repeat two names together, that means you're calling out for relationship. Here is God who is right now trying to disclose himself. God is disclosing himself to Moses. That's our first point. God is disclosing himself to Moses. And Moses all of a sudden hears, understands God is calling him, and then he responds by saying, Moses saying, here I am. Now, strange, because he sees his burning bush, he hears his name called out, and then he responds, here I am. You ever notice that whenever um, you're a parent and you're calling out your kid, Hey, Giuseppe, doesn't answer. Giuseppe, can't whistle this morning. No answer. Finally say, hey, get over here now. See, it's like, you know, you have, but he's like, I would love for my son to say, here I am, dad. Yes, sir, what would you like? Just doesn't happen. I can say, Giuseppe, Giuseppe, still won't happen. But Moses knew that it was relationship and he called him out. And he says, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. See, what God is saying is the first disclosure of God, he's saying God is holy. God is holy. See, God's holiness, it's real simple. He's perfect. He's unique. He's without blemish. And he wants to introduce himself the way that he did. And sometimes when we think of God being holy, we think of reverence, but sometimes we think of, we get afraid, we're scared of God. We're afraid that he may know us better than we know ourselves. And sometimes what we like to do is we get so scared that we don't revere and we run away from him. We avoid him. We sweep sin under the carpet 
And then we think that we can get away with it and we can smile and say, hi, how you doing? But deep down, we have sin in our lives. And God's holiness is not something that we should be afraid of because actually it's kind of a beautiful thing. If God were not holy, we would have no hope. You're like, wow. If God were not holy, we would have no hope. Why? Because he's a standard. He's perfect. And if we didn't have a perfect standard, we wouldn't know where to reach. But we can't reach a perfect standard. It's impossible. That's why Jesus came. We are imperfect. That's why we're sinners. Really what it means is we're imperfect is we're sinners. And thank you, Lord, that Jesus was a perfect sacrifice, an atoning substitutionary atonement for us. He died for sin. He met the demand of holiness. And now through Jesus, when the Father sees us, he sees the Son. And he sees us pure and holy, even though we may not feel it. But God is still calling us to a standard where we need to surrender to him. So he's disclosing himself. But what about his parents or grandparents? Do you want your children or grandchildren to be afraid of you? Or do you want them to respect you? Are you talking at your children or over them? Or are you talking to them in kindness? Are you dialoguing them or are you just commanding them? I mean, do you react or do you respond to them? Now, I ask those questions because I don't want my children to be afraid of me. I want them to respect me, but I can't demand respect. God doesn't even demand respect from us. That's how awesome he is. He's so loving, so kind, and so gentle. And his holiness is to be revered. Not something we should be afraid of. Because if you and I are afraid of him, then we will never expose ourselves. If we are afraid of him, then we will never bear our hearts before him. If we are afraid of him, then we will not exchange our hearts over to him. We won't trust him with our hearts. That's the beauty of this. Is that we have to understand that the holiness of God is so key. Secondly, God is a covenant God. As I just mentioned, he's an unconditional covenant God. He loves us. He has a purpose. He has a plan. And he had a plan for the people of Israel. They were a special people. And you know what was part of that plan? The covenant was to reach Gentile nations. You know what part of the plan here as a church is to reach those who are far away from God? Do you know that you are 007's agents to reach the lost? Do you know that's the purpose of the church, to make disciples? But before you make disciples, you got to evangelize. And when you evangelize, you make disciples. And then when you get them excited about becoming disciples, they want to evangelize and tell others. Come on, men. Come on, men. When you fell in love with your wives, and if you're, if you're 40, 50 years down the road, you're still telling people about your wife, right? Because if you're not, you better give them a nudge, ladies. You better say, hey, you need to talk about me some. Because when you're falling in love and you know you're in love, you're going to share it with everybody. Well, the purpose of the church is that we're so enamored by the love of God, by the holiness of God, that he is a covenant-keeping, faithful, loving God who will never leave us nor forsake us. And we're going to share it with somebody. And so this is what he's trying. Now, if God is introducing himself to someone like Moses, you better believe he's going to share some of this. Why? Because when Moses is about to go into the future, he's going to be hit up with a lot of trials, difficulties, anguish, and pain. And he's going to need to be reminded of this. That's why 
In verse 6, he says this again, not only in chapter 2, but he says it again in verse 6. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses at this time hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. He revered him. He wasn't afraid like a fear that, oh, I don't want to go near God. He revered him. He recognized that he was God, creator God. And in verse 7, he goes on this. He goes, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. Here he goes again in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land in a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now see, the idea is God is not just holy He's not just a covenant God. God is a redeemer. He is redeemer. And see, it's important for us to understand that. He goes again in verse 7. I heard their cry and I know their sorrows. Again, through the sufferings, through the trials, through the difficulties, it is when we really recognize that God is our redeemer. You know, um, short months ago, you know, having to live a, a life of faith, my wife and I have learned over the years, with a life of faith comes a life of challenges. Not only interpersonal relationships, but also finances at times. And God does it in such a way where he allows the situation and then he redeems us. It's a cool thing. So some about six, eight months ago, and this has happened a few times in my life, God allowed us to come down to probably our last few dollars. I have a house, single home, it's got some value, but the liquid money wasn't there just at the moment. And I began to cry out to God. And I cried out to God for a few days. Didn't tell anybody. And then it was one specific day I shared it with a friend. And I didn't disclose the amount of money that we needed, but just said, hey, be praying. So then I called him again the next day. Hey, bro, just keep praying. We're, we're trusting God. We're believing God. This has happened often in our lives. We've seen God do crazy miracles in our lives. And then the next day I call him and he goes, hey, I said, by the way, I'm going through something right now. Can you help me? I'm finishing up on my book and I need help on this contract thing because my friend deals with a lot of contracts. He said, sure, why don't, you, uh, why don't you come over later? So I went over to his house later that evening. We hung around and we talked a little bit and we even prayed. And then he said, hey, man, I got to go to work tomorrow. Um, I got to get going. But hey, I want to share something with you. You just shared with me right now, just before you were leaving, Bruno, you shared with me that amount, the X amount of money that you were looking for. You never shared that with me till this point. I said, right, I didn't want to share it. I just wanted to let you know now it's come down to where tomorrow Bill is due and I'm trusting God. He goes, okay. He goes, I want to let you know that when we got off the phone earlier in the day and I got home from work, I told my wife, let's sit down and pray. So dropped everything they prayed. After they prayed, they looked at each other and the Lord said for them to do something. But he said, you know, Bruno, we didn't know. Should we pay some bills for you? Should we help you through this? I said, well, that's great. He goes, what was that amount of money that you disclosed to me? And I told him, he goes, it's sitting in an envelope here in cash. Now, I want to share something with you. It wasn't in the hundreds. I'm looking at you because God became more and more my redeemer that day. Guys, we can say God is the redeemer, but until it becomes personal, 
then he's my redeemer. He rescued me. God is interested in rescuing us. God is interested in rescuing us because he has an unconditional covenant, which means he keeps his side of the pact. Uh, A covenant is a pact between two people, and he keeps his end, and it's unconditional, despite the conditions. And God will say, I will get you through it no matter what. And in this case, he said to the Israelites, I will deliver you. He said it to his representative. I will deliver you. I will get you from the people of Egypt. Because Egypt and the Egyptians and Pharaoh were a powerful nation. They were the most powerful on the earth. And how in the world could that happen? But until God says, I can tell you I'm a redeemer. But when I show you, it's going to come even closer. Because when they were faced with the Red Sea, And they see a sea in front of them. And they're turning around saying, "Uh uh-oh, the Egyptians are after us. What do we do? Moses, you got any plans here? Moses like, the Lord said for me to raise my staff. That's all I know. But God places a buffer between the Egyptians and themselves, and he protects them. And he just told Moses, raise up your staff. And the sea parts. Now, can you imagine the look on their faces when Moses was trying to convince them, you're a redeemer. God is a redeemer. But when in that moment, when you're seeing a sea and it's part to dry land and you're walking over and you're looking up at the walls as you're walking by and saying, wow, this is really cool. And you're walking, you're like, wow, God, you really are a redeemer. And then you turn around and see the Egyptians fall into the sea. That is redeemer God. Can you imagine what they're going through? Lastly, God is a creator. And real quickly, God desires to have a personal relationship with his creation. Just look with me to Isaiah 45, 5 through 7, real quickly. 45, 5 through 7. I'm just going to read this real quick. It says this, I am the Lord, there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all things. He is creator God. He is sovereign. He's in control. And whatever struggle we're ever going through, whatever situation, whatever trial we're going through, God is creator. He is sovereign. He's going to take care of it. And that's what he's promising to Moses through this time as well, is that you have to understand is that he's working through this. He's saying the I am. I am. That's what he's mentioning too when he's saying, I am, I am. The discourse in this paragraph here, in this section, is I am. Just like with John chapter 8, 58, Jesus said before Abraham, I am, ego a me in the Greek, I am, is a very personal name for God. Let's look at that for just a moment. So when we're looking at that, we're understanding God discloses himself and he shares some of these things. We need to, and Moses, what he does, he begins to expose himself. So Moses exposes himself. Now, some of you might think exposing just seems mean that we could just confess a little bit of sin. We can say that, you know, I've lied a little bit, or I just said the wrong thing to my wife, or I said the wrong thing to my child. But I think what Moses is doing here 
And some scholars would believe that Moses was objecting or he was using excuses here. I look at it a little differently. I don't see this as him using his excuses or objecting. I see that Moses is bearing his heart before God. And he's exposing himself. One of the areas in which he's exposing himself. Number one, incompetency. I have no ability. Chapter 3, verse 11. He goes, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? You got to remember, he grew up with the Pharaoh. He was in that household. Now God's asking him to go back and tell them that the God of the universe, the creator God, the redeeming God, the holy God is calling him out. Now, this is a powerful nation. This isn't like you're going to a stranger and they don't have much power and they're just someone next door and you want to tell them. But I can imagine when you and I have to share the gospel with a family member, how difficult that is. Can you imagine what Moses is going through at this time? And he's not feeling too competent. He doesn't feel as though he can do it. He's overwhelmed with emotion, has to go back to the people who he grew up with and share it. He's saying, I have no ability. But look what God does. God says in verse 12, but I'll be with you. Jehovah Shammah, I'll be with you. I've heard you. I remember my covenant. Jehovah Shammah. Isn't that cool? So even when you and I feel incompetent, even if we're not able to share with someone, even if we're afraid that maybe if we share, we're going to offend someone, God is saying, I'll be with you. Here's another thing that he does. Number two, see, Moses was uninformed. He went on to say this, In verse 12, or verse 13, he says, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? He didn't say who, he said what, why? Because see, who refers to title, name, and identity. But what refers to character, quality, and the essence of a person? In other words, the people of Israel would probably have to ask, what are you gonna do for us, God? Moses wanted to know, what am I going to tell them, Lord? I don't know what to tell them. They're going to say, what are you going to do for me? You ever get that? When people say, what do I do? See, you can't share with someone about God if you've never experienced God. And you can't share about God if you haven't done that transfer of your heart. I'm not referring to justification when you've given your heart to the Lord and you said, now I'm a Christian. I'm talking about sanctification, walking in a process where you're learning to hand over your heart to God. See, Moses is bearing his heart. He's saying, Lord, I don't know. I admit, I don't know, Lord. I don't know what to do. See, pride and jealousy and envy gets in the way of us saying, I don't know. How often I catch myself. How often do you catch yourself? It would bring so much more unity into the church if we could just say, I don't know, I need to pray. I don't have an answer for you, but I'm sure enough going to ask God for help. Rather than demanding people to do things that you yourself are not doing, that you're demanding something from someone else, judging your intentions, but judging people's actions. And see, that's why it's important that he admitted. He said, I'm going to bear my heart. I'm going to expose myself. God, I don't know. I'm uninformed. But here's what what the Lord said. This is, by the way, if you're going to know anything of a name of God, this this is the name. Write this down. Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. 
I am is Yahweh, the name Yahweh, the self-existent I am God. It's specifically in any form. With Jesus, he referred to himself as the I am. Curios in the New Testament, Yahweh in the Old Testament. But Yahweh was representing him in the book of Genesis. But he was identifying himself because he was telling the Israelites will know what Yahweh is and the name of Yahweh. They will know the Lord when you share it with them. And see, that's the beauty of it because he didn't, see, literally it means I will be who I will be or I will be. It's actually in the future tense. But you know what? I am means he's here present. He will always be present. See, we're not supposed to live from in the past. We're supposed to live in the present and look to the future. Too often we live in the past. We hold on to the past. We have a hard time living in the present and we want to control the future. See, that's what ends up happening. Now, with my grays sitting in my hair right now, I'm starting to look back. And I have to be careful. I don't live in my past. But I got to live in the present and look to the future. You guys are like, wow, that's a pretty cool step right here. But you know what I'm saying? So it's important that we understand that because that's what he's saying to Moses. I am. I'm always present. And will always be. Third. Sometimes we're doubtful. Moses was doubtful. Chapter four, verse one, Moses answered, but what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? He's saying, I have no credibility. The Lord said, trust me. He goes on to say in verse two, he goes, then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand, a staff? And the Lord said, throw it to the ground. So Moses threw it to the ground and it became a snake. Now see me, I would run. I hate snakes. I would run. But God is saying, pick it up. Can you imagine the trust me, pick it up? I'd be like, Lord, I'll do anything but pick up that snake right now. I don't care how many times you tell me to trust you. I can't pick up that snake. There's that fear, but I have to face that fear. How often do we doubt the Lord because life is not convenient, comfortable, or complacent? We doubt the Lord because he has not fulfilled our dreams. We live in the past We don't live in the present and we want to control the future. God's calling us to the present. Fourthly, inadequacy. Verse 10, he goes on to say this. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow to speech and tongue. But listen how the Lord, now some scholars question this. They think this is exaggerated humility. Because Moses did speak on behalf of two million people. He was a leader, but he was overwhelmed. He didn't want to face Pharaoh. The fears were overwhelming. Just like my fear of snakes, his fear was to face Pharaoh. He didn't feel eloquent, but yet the Lord said, stop, I will teach you. I will teach you. He goes on in verse 11 and he says this. The Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord, Yahweh? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. So when you and I don't feel like we're eloquent enough, when we, is it that we're not eloquent enough or we're just afraid? Are we afraid of rejection from a family person or a stranger or a person in the neighborhood? 
Or we just saying, using excuse, possibly exaggerated humility, I am not eloquent. So we have to check ourselves. But you got to be honest. See, the honest thing may be, I'm just afraid. Because God's already equipped you. He said, I'll be with you. I'm Shama. I'm there with you. I'll give you everything you need. So is it that you're not eloquent enough? Or are you and I just afraid sometimes? And that's what God is doing with Moses. He's trying to teach him, and he's saying, I will teach you. And lastly, apathetic. Sometimes we just don't have a desire. Verse 13, it says, but Moses said, Lord, please send someone else to do it. He came and he bared, he exposed, he finally said, he finally said, anybody knows Italian, this means wow. He finally said, I just can't do it. How many of you felt that? How many of you have felt that life is so overwhelming you've had enough? How many of you feel this pain and this anguish and this suffering and you just say, Lord, not here, not now. Don't make me go through this. Lord, don't make me pick up this snake. Don't make me do this, Lord. Now, this is the first time that God, he was patient, he was loving, he was gentle, and he continues to be. But he showed some, a little bit of anger here. Because in verse 14, Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. Meaning God's saying, You can't get out of this. I won't let you because I love you too much. I want to bless you. I want to use you to redeem my people. I have a covenant with you. You are one of my people, and I won't let you get away with this. I love you too much. You may not have any desire, but I will provide the desire and the passion, and I will give you the courage to be able to get through this. See, until we expose our hearts, we're never going to get there. And sometimes God has to lovingly spank us to say, I'm not letting you go there. God wants to stretch you and I. We're going to talk about that next week. But God desires to stretch us because he's interested and he loves us deeply. You know, the movie um, Woodlawn, I don't know if you ever heard of it. I, I heard of it recently. It was a movie that depicted Tony Nathan, who played for the Miami Dolphins. He also played for Woodlawn High School, and he played for Alabama. Great running back. One of the best. Even was really, really good in the NFL. He was in two Super Bowls, in Super Bowl 17 and 19. But Tony Nathan's story is depicted in this movie, and Tandy Jarrells is the coach. And doesn't, there was this a time in the 60s where there was segregation, the, uh, the horrible, horrible racial discrimination that was occurring in the 60s and even into the 70s. And as this was happening, a gentleman by the name of Hank, who was an evangelist, came into the high school to speak to the coach and said, can I talk to your players? And he says he was fighting against it, but they allowed for him to come and talk. And this gentleman spoke to the players And over 40 players came to Christ. He shared the gospel with them. Now, some of you may remember some of that. I was still a young little boy. But I can assure you that just coming to Christ in 1989, that it's very difficult to get into high schools and very difficult to share the gospel in public settings. But lo and behold, what had happened was Tandy allowed for it, and then slowly it began to change his life. But in this particular movie, 
uh, scene, in the scene in the movie, I want you guys to just watch the interaction with the coach and the running back, Tony Nathan. And then I'll share a little bit about that. Let's put that up for just a moment. If you notice in that clip, the coach said, I believe you're faster than all of them. He transferred and said, you're going to get the ball. When Tony got the ball, that first play, he didn't believe it. What happened was he ran and ran towards out of bounds because he was afraid of confronting his inadequacy and his fear that they were going to get him. He was trying to run away from that fear. Then the coach said, hey, it's a contact sport. It's good when you hit them first. So what happened in the second play? He faced his fear, had the ball in his hand, and he believed he could do it. And when he believed he could do it, then success happened because he ran for about 20 or 30 yards. I can assure you that when a running back runs 20, 30 yards, it's a great run. And so God is saying, I believe in my covenant. I have called you, Moses. I'm giving you the ball. But Moses is struggling, wondering, I'm incompetent, and God's trying to say, no, you're not. I will be with you. And that was the same thing with the running back. He realized, and by the way, Tony Nathan is a man of God. This is a Christian movie, and it's a cool movie if you ever want to get it. But it's the idea that he grabbed that ball and said, I believe I'm going to face it. Till you and I do that, we're never going to be able to embrace what God has for us. As a church, you'll never be able to do that. You'll never be able to embrace what God has for you. By the way, this building is not the church. You are the church. You are the people of God. I am the church. Wherever I go, whatever I do, I am the church. And when I share Christ with someone, I'm being the church. When you share Christ with someone, you're being the church. When you're lovingly serving someone, you're being the church. When you're looking at your neighbors and saying, how can I be gracious toward my neighbor? You're being the church. They don't need to come to this building. This is just a building. <laughs> it's not going to do anything for you other than it says it's comfortable. It's nice lighting. Like this behind here, the balcony's cool, but that's not going to save anybody. Your life is going to matter. You're the one that God wants to use. But you, have, you and I have to exchange our hearts over. That's why I shared at the end is that trusting God requires exchange of hands. Here are the three things you'll experience. You will experience his boundless grace and mercy. You can look at those, those references. You can take that home with you. Not for sake of time because that's in the future. You will be empowered to accomplish his purpose. Second application. And you will be effective to reach others. You will experience his boundless grace and mercy. You will be empowered to accomplish his purpose. You will be effective to reach others. Here's one more clip from this movie because it's, it's an amazing, amazing clip. Because now the coach who had hatred and admitted that, even hatred towards other people for the sake of what was going on during that time, admitted that something happened to him that changed his life. But it took others to be effective to changing his life. And I just want you guys, I I hope this moves you because it moved me, to just look at this for just a minute and just 
embrace the moment of what the coach is trying to say. Let's try that other video clip. Hatred is what blinds us. Pride is what blinds us. You know the word pride actually means in the Greek? It means blind, foolish, and mentally ill. Envy and jealousy, slander, that kills the people of God. Tandy came to Christ. He went to be with the Lord in 2003. His son is the one who wrote the book. And they made a movie out of it. Really great story. But Tandy said, here you are, Tony. You got the ball. He trusted that he could do it. God is saying to you and I, I want to hand you over the ball. Now you've got to take the ball and give it back to God. That's your heart. You've got to give your heart to God. You and I have got to trust God with our heart. We've got to do the exchange. Because before we can tell others, we've got to experience him. You can't tell people he's a redeemer if you have never experienced his redemptive work. You can't tell him he's merciful and gracious if you haven't experienced that. If you're sitting in pride and anger and jealousy, I've been through that and I've not gotten anywhere until I surrendered. And so I want to encourage you today as the worship team is coming up, I'm going to pray for you guys, but I'm, that's not the benediction, by the way, for the user who want to know. I just want to pray for you right now because there's something going on in the heart of the church, not just this church, but in general. And I know you guys are going through something as a church, obviously, but a lot of churches are going through that today. Whatever you're holding on to as an individual before God, I want to encourage you to entrust your heart to God. He will lovingly care for you and meet you where you're at. So I just want to pray for you right now and ask that God will prepare your heart before we end the service after the song. Father, I, I thank you for today and thank you for reminding us that you are a loving, holy, redeeming God covenant-keeping God. You love us so deeply, and you will not allow us to get away because you love us too much. I pray that you would prepare our hearts to trust you, to entrust over to you our hearts and to bear our hearts with you, to expose our hearts to you. If it's inadequacy, incompetence, doubt, fear, anger, pride, hatred, whatever it is, Lord, you will not call us out but you'll do it lovingly. You won't give up on us. So Father, I pray that today you'll continue to do that work in the hearts of your gracious and loving people here today. And I pray, Lord, as we sing this song, may we just worship you and may we reflect on what you're trying to say to us today in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.